Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Tuesday, February 22nd, 2022. I am John Poporitz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. If I sound a little different, I'm in a remote and undisclosed location speaking to you over iPods, uh, AirPods, so uh, I don't have the buttery, the buttery sound of my Sure 7 microphone, and I apologize for that. Uh, but I hope my colleagues and their buttery, delicious microphones will uh, make up for it. Uh, colleagues being, of course, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. And associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Uh, Christine Rosen is out for the rest of the week. With us today, commentary contributor, Putin watcher, foreign policy columnist, and all-around great guy, Eli Lake. Hi, Eli. How are you? Great. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, so, um, it's a, it's a pretty terrible day and things are only going to get worse. Um, so I think we have lots of different strands to unravel here, um, including the domestic political reaction, the elite political reaction. Um, Eli, maybe you can, uh, here, here's what I would say quickly, which is that, uh, uh, Putin, who is an old fashioned, you know, former KGB guy. Um, is using what I would think of as classic 20th century pre, you know, uh, uh, pretexts for doing what he's doing, claiming that there are essentially captive populations behind uh, the lines in, you know, in uh, in unfree Ukraine, poor uh, Russians who have been um, swamped and uh, overlaid by the uh, majority population who need defending. That's exactly what happened in the Sudetenland. That was Hitler's argument for taking the Sudetenland, the poor German, poor, poor ethnic Germans uh, under Czech sway. Um, and, and it's just a classic sort of pretext. Uh, it was actually his pretext in 2014 for taking the bite out of Ukraine that he did in 2014 out of uh, Crimea and Donetsk. So here we are with the Donbass. Here we are. And, uh, and it's just following the same program, right? Uh, the Ukrainians are attacking uh, the poor Russians. And so we, we got to go in there. But his, uh, pretext, there... his pretext in 2014 was that a parliamentary process which removed a president that had campaigned on integration with the European Union and then reversed himself at the last minute at the instruction of the Kremlin uh, had been ousted by the Ukrainian parliament and that after there were justifiable protests on the streets. And then he did, he described this as a Western coup after uh, Viktor Yanukovych, the, the, the president at the time fled to Russia. And um, so th this is, this is a very naked example of how Putin has always had the idea that Ukraine should not be independent and should be under his sway full stop. The other precedent to mention, uh, which is interesting in this context, because, you know, no one's ever gotten to the bottom of it, is that, you know, the first major uh, Muslim, aside from the first World Trade Center bombing, the first major Muslim attack on a non-Muslim country, uh, you know, in, uh, in the period that we now think of as sort of like Islamic, Islamist terrorism, uh, came in Russia in, I think, 1999, when supposedly the Chechnyan, Chechnyan terrorists had um, waylaid this um, theater in, in, in Moscow. Um, and it has always been 
people are thinking of the apartment bombings the nordos siege is excuse uh, me the nordos siege i'm sorry right no 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 i'm not i'm thinking of the i'm thinking of the seizure of the of the theater in the 90s when then the the russians went in and shot 700 people dead claiming that they had 2002 right but claiming that they had to um they had to rescue, uh, you know, the, this was a this was a Chechen terrorist incursion, and a lot of people uh, believed at the time that that was a false flag, that he was uh, that this was a, a Russian uh, operation intended to blacken the name of uh, Chechen separatists and also to give him free reign to uh, impose martial, uh, much more martial law. And I think you know, basically, if you look today back, you got to say that the argument that Putin's play, playing pretext games like that is more it's more likely than not that 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 conspiracy theory was correct because he it's also he what he does it's also what he does in terms of domestic politics I mean he, he right well he that claims, was for domestic politics no yeah. but I, but I mean but I mean you know he, he claims that his critics are enemies uh and and genuine threats uh to Russia to his rule to the people and he puts them under arrest. Uh, so he he all he in other words, he invents pretenses um, as needed for everything. Right. Well, listen, everything went according to as Western intelligence predicted it would. We should update the audience on what happened over the weekend. Uh, essentially, what Tony Blinken said would happen happened four hours later um, with regard to uh, provocations on the border and uh, uh, bombings and and shellings. Uh, and then somehow, you know, this infrastructure would blow up and that piece of equipment would blow up. And then the, uh, the residents or the, the proxy forces in LDPR uh, would, you know, uh, demand that Moscow intervene. And then, uh, you know, so all this stuff happened over the course of you know, 48 hours, as Tony Blinken predicted it would, with one exception, um, which I think actually shook loose a little bit of Europe. Um, if they had just recognized the republics and then put a military uh introduced uh military support for the republics i don't think it would have had the reaction that it's having today what happened yesterday uh, in a series of pre-recorded meetings and speeches uh in the kremlin was positively chilling because it wasn't 20th century it was 19th century um they had this national security council meeting where uh, the whole of the Security Council was uh, implicated in this process. They were asked you know, directly whether they supported the petition for recognition of independence of these republics. And anybody who, you know, there was a lot of rah-rah, you know, very nationalistic, chauvinistic nonsense, but there was occasional people who were a little reluctant uh, to endorse this uh, maneuver. I'm thinking of the intelligence services chief in particular, who was badgered into eventually saying yes. So, you know, implicating uh, we should, the entire we should clarify. Regime. Noah, hold up. We should clarify when you said Security Council, you mean the Russian, the internal Russian Security Council, not the UN Security Council. Correct. Russia's Security yeah, okay. Council. Okay. And then um, so the decision was essentially ratified there. And then Vladimir Putin gave the speech uh, to the country that I, I think went like an hour and a half. It was this sprawling peroration on the history of the Slavic Imperium and the Tsardom's possessions and uh, you know, the, the legalistic uh, creation of the Ukrainian state by the Bolsheviks. And therefore, you know, the, on the doctrine of I, can I, I brought you into this world, I can take you out of it, justifying the uh, destruction of the existence of the Ukrainian state in a very, very clear terms, shockingly clear terms, just the will to power. 
Um, you know, and then followed, following that, in, in a little digression, a National Security Council meeting of the United Nations, which on which Russia currently serves as the rotating president, just making the whole uh, the whole process oriented pieties of the diplomatic establishment um, laid bare for being the the nonsense they are in the face of one brazen display of hard power. All of it sort of dissolved, and I think that speech and the subsequent actions by Russia really was a giant strategic error because it demonstrated the extent to which Moscow's ambitions are not simply irredentist, you know, just reuniting the, the, the Russian-speaking diaspora. Um, it's much more uh, a desire to reconstitute imperial possessions of the 19th century, and that's the sort of thing that I think really woke a lot of, a lot of European capitals up. You know, but before, uh, before we had our own... Um, uh, uh, the rise of the uh, NatCons in in the United States. Uh, there was a, there's an, a kind of a weird parallel to what went on in Russia. Leon Aaron, the Russia scholar, wrote a piece for commentary in 2014 after the Russians took Crimea, called Novo Russia, in which he points out that um, uh, New Russia uh, is are the is the name Novo Russia was what uh, Putin declared. Uh, the lands in southeastern Ukraine uh, that he seized were that they are historically part of Russia. Uh, and as Leon writes, the term Novorossiya had been used only once before in history during the three decades from the late 18th to the early 19th centuries to describe the territories north of the Black Sea and Sea of Azov that Catherine the Great had wrested from the Ottoman Turks. What's more, Putin said, the lands of his Novorossiya had never been part of Ukraine. The contention is nonsensical. But this is the important thing is where we are going back to the 19th century. When we say Putin wants to reconstitute the Soviet Union, he is using Russian nationalist fantasy history, which and that itself is also straight out of 19th century nationalism to say there never was a Ukraine. Ukraine is the, is the source and the seat of Russia. It's where Rus came from. And, and therefore uh, the notion of, of, a, of an independent Ukraine is, is historically preposterous. And that's what he said yesterday. Like, this is where the scales fell off. The justification that he gave to the Russian people is that we are claiming our motherland. We are returning the motherland to us after the depredations by the outside world. It is a very, very significant thing. Like, I'm talking about all these pretexts and stuff. He then goes to the Russian people and says, we are reassembling Russia, the Russia, Russia that existed, not even greater. Greater Russia would be if he takes the Baltics and stuff. And well, you well know, that's, takes... the, but that's the point okay. is that all I you know. have, if you're invoking the 19th century, all you got to do is look at a map and say, oh, Helsinki's in there. Riga's in there. Warsaw's yeah. in there. Yeah. But, you and know, and also they... just 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 to go back to the, you know, yeah. just to reinforce his point of it being a pre 20th century. He blamed Khrushchev for allowing Ukraine to exist yesterday. Yeah. I mean, so so this this is this is not reconstituting the Soviet Union. This yeah. is this is a deeper, longer, longer running fantasy. No, no, exactly. And uh, Leon also uh, quoted um, uh, a fantastic quote from the Russian novelist Vladimir Sorokin uh, in an essay in the New York Review of Books. He wrote this: "The huge iceberg Russia, frozen by the Putin regime, cracked." 
After the events in Crimea, it has split from the European world and sailed off into the unknown. This was written in 2014. No one knows what will happen to the country now into which seas or swamps it will drift. Uh, Russia is no longer Europe, but another peculiar civilization. So Eli, give us the benefit of your wisdom uh, after the last like four or five days. Well, I'm very concerned at this point that what we've seen so far, uh, the most significant being the decision from Germany to suspend its certification of Nord Stream 2 are very, these are all reversible. And I don't buy the argument, uh, with all due respect, Noah, that this was when the scales lifted and everybody sort of saw Putin for what he is. Uh, He's been telling us this since the Munich Security Conference in 2008, uh, and he has been acting accordingly little by little, whether it was uh, the incursion and occupation of territories in Georgia, whether it was 2014, whether it has been the brazen assassinations uh, efforts that he has attempted all over the world, but particularly in the United Kingdom. Um, Everything that Vladimir Putin has done has been to signal loud and clear that he is no longer playing by the rules of the international system. And the response has always been half measures, harsh rhetoric, occasional sanctions. And none of it has deterred Putin. And I think he has taken the measure of not just the United States, but really the West. And he's realized that these are probably going to be temporary measures and he will survive and Russia will survive. And I think that that, this requires a radical break from the approach that there are things that we can work with Russia on and then areas where we compete. So the very fact that next week in Vienna, we are told there may be an announcement of a new Iran nuclear agreement with Russia standing right there, uh, suggests that there isn't going to be this kind of break that's needed. And this this is such a danger at this point that I don't understand uh, why the, the sanctions that were supposedly ready to go have not been at least announced and implemented and we're not, we're not there. So I, I mean, yes, we're getting a little bit more from Germany maybe than we expected. The, the Italians still say that they will not support energy sanctions at this point. Um, so all of this talk that, you know, Biden has galvanized Europe and that there will be these heavy financial consequences I'm really worried that we're really not going to see it. And that yeah, I don't fully, I don't disagree with any of that. Truth when he said minor <laughs> incursion will be different. Yeah. I mean, from our perspective, Washington's response has been the weakest. I mean, I don't think, look, we're not going to see what Eli, neither of us are going to see what we want to see out of Europe. Right. We, we're, let's just be reasonable and realistic about that. But we have seen more than I thought we'd see a willingness to endure and incur pain in response to this. Nord Stream 2's failure to be, you know, it can be reversed, the failure to certify this pipeline. Once they start disassembling it, then I'll think they're serious. But not opening it up incurs financial pain, financial costs. Britain's decision to to sanction five oligarchs is a direct attack on on the London laundromat. That's painful. That'll hurt economically. That's not something I expected to see. What we've seen out of Washington has been dithering, has been this bizarre call where there's where all of a sudden 
Washington is reverting back to the minor incursion theory. There was this call last night of the SOA um, saying, and well, Russia already had troops in uh, the Donbass region. So it's not really an escalation, but we're going to treat it like That's an escalation, an important... even though they could Hold have up. escalated no, all the time. So you bring up this call. So some, some senior administration official, so we can presume that was either Jake Sullivan oh, yeah. or the head of the CIA, I'm not sure, decided to downplay the severity of the events yesterday, which, which indicates that um, the Biden administration, which I don't think that we had known uh, that there was a major either ideological or tactical disagreements inside it, unless I'm very much mistaken, or unless you know Biden is just bouncing back and forth between being tough and being conciliatory. Um, they they seem to be quite sort of relentless in saying this is going to happen and we better prepare for it. Except as you say, Eli, what does that mean? You know, outside of the abstract, you know, they're gonna they're gonna go in next week. You know, I think the thing that we have to really take uh, as a given now is that um, this was all set to go and that everything that people said like three weeks ago happened, which is that he went to, he went to Xi of China, said, I'm going to go into, you know, I'm going in and Xi of China said, uh, I'm fine with that. Just wait until after the Olympics. So the Olympics end on Sunday night. What happens on Monday? Boom. This, you know, I mean, I don't know how you view this otherwise. And Meanwhile, as the Olympics are ending, there's this Munich Security Conference where, you know, leading officials from all the Western countries go. And as Josh Rogan in a really, really uh, tough piece uh, today points out that there was all this celebration of Western unity in, you know, in, right. in being opposed to Russia uh, going into Ukraine. And that's like, great. So what's the point of the unity? So everyone I should like say, we're all together. It's bad. Thanks very much. Like, you know, there are 150,000 troops ready to like pour over the border. And there are all these, there's all this talk of these horrifying plans to directly hit Kiev, you know, uh, and if the list, intelligence list is of people good, who yeah. participated in what they call the 2014 coup, who will be uh, detained and arrested and tortured. I mean, all of this stuff is coming out. I mean, we, we don't, I mean, this is from U.S. intelligence, but yeah. Right. But so, so far, think, U.S. intelligence seems to have gotten a lot of this right, which should yep. be making us scared about the doomsday nightmare scenarios that we've been reading leaks of because because everything else has basically been on track from what I can tell. But my, my point is that I think this requires a radical rethink of the security architecture that Putin has just violated. And let me just exp uh, explain a little yeah. bit more what I mean by that. I think at this point, that we need to take the approach that certain international organizations like Interpol cannot have Russia in it. And if Interpol is incapable of kicking Russia out, then we need to create a new Interpol without Russia, probably without Iran or China either, but that's a separate question. And we need to do that for a number of these international organizations. We're not gonna get rid of the United Nations at this point, but what we do need to do is begin to create parallel institutions that exclude Russia diplomatically, economically, and there has to be an understanding that this is now permanent. So long as Putin is in charge of Russia, Russia will be treated as geopolitical COVID. It will be treated as geopolitical pariah. And that has to be something that is not going to be reversed 
the next time that Biden's State Department has this brilliant idea that if we just work with the Russians, we can get, uh, you know, another agreement with the Iranians or whatever. There's no longer, we can no longer play this game where we can see, all right, on certain things we'll work with Russia, on certain things we won't work with Russia. It's the same with climate change in China. It's like, yes, ideally it would be nice, but the Chinese, the Russians have answered these questions for us. And we need to start thinking very clearly about what this means. And that means a kind of, I call it a strategy of inoculation. We need to create, we need to sort of protect the international system from predator states like Russia. And that means a very serious approach to exclusion. It means really seriously saying that our presence in frontline NATO states will now be permanent and there has to be more of an investment in that. And we need to just rethink all of these things that are based on the faulty assumption that someone like Vladimir Putin can ultimately be realized that he's a rational actor and all this other stuff. That's not true. I wish it was true. It would be nice if we could have a stable relationship with Russia would be nice if we could deter it, but we can't. So we're going to have to deal with the fact that we have two, two, two great power enemies right now, China and Russia. One's on the rise. The other might be declining economically, but that's the way it is. And, uh, you know, it'd be nice. It'd be nice if Russia and China weren't allies, but this is how the world is at this point. And that I think it requires this kind of rethinking. My concern is that the response from the Biden administration, the response from Europe is going to be reversed over time and that we will see sort of tough measures. But I, I would be surprised if in a year from now, they're going to still sort of stick. And, uh, you know, to, to yeah. see this response of everyone patting themselves on the back of the Munich Security Council, oh, we're all united because everybody gave tough speeches. Uh, it, it sort of turns my stomach. I, I just wanted to say I, I agree with absolutely everything Eli said. And I think what he has described um, in, in sort of recounting what Putin has done in both the supposedly minor incursions and major, um, the West has responded every step of the way tactically, never strategically. It's always about what we're going to do when faced with this next incremental step. And that's what that's what's exactly what we're hearing now, right? From from the Biden administration. It's like, well, how do we we'll, we'll just address the two breakaway regions. There is a much larger we have no strategic Russia policy right now. And the one Eli describes is a great start. And require I mean, Bob Kagan has an excellent piece in in the Washington Post that makes it clear that Putin has just checked, as in precursor to checkmate Eastern Europe. Um, this is this is not a question of what are we going to do about about the the the, the two uh, supposedly independent regions inside the Ukraine. This is a much larger problem, and it requires a new Russia policy. But it also requires a change in our will to to yeah. face this kind of thing. That is a huge because a huge part of the policy. Is we should do all the things Eli talked about. We also need a new military posture. Um, we need new spending and we need to, and especially once you bring China into the equation, which which we have to, um, we're talking about a, a, a two front situation that we now have to have to um, get in line with. Right. Well, look, I mean, when again, I don't want to it's so it's so easy to go back to historical parallels, but the historical parallels here are 
a little eerie. I mean, um, when Germany finally invaded Poland in September of 1939, the minute that that happened, it was clear that the that the jig was up. Right that that the that the approach that Europe had taken throughout the 1930s, or at least since you know the Reichstag fire onward had failed. All Every effort that was made was made to prevent the thing that then happened. So let them take, a, let them take the Sudetenland. I brought you peace in our time. You know, that's all they wanted. You know, let them have it. You know, we, we, no one wants to go to war. We're going to prevent war. When, they, when the Russians, excuse me, when Germany moved into Poland, that was the end of it. Churchill, uh, uh, Chamberlain resigned. He recognized that his efforts had failed and the world changed, turned on a dime on September 1st, 1939. The, there, was no, there was no denying that a serious and sustained effort at, a very, at an understandable and explicable foreign policy approach, which was called appeasement and was not considered a, a bad word then, it was an approach like, okay, give him what he wants. Like who's more powerful than who? And you get, you know, sat, make, save him with his territorial demands and he'll quiet down. And, and all, of, all of Western thinking and probably all of planetary thinking about how to deal with um, uh, revolutionary or irredentist or, or yeah, revolutionary actors changed almost at that moment from what we, I wasn't there, but from what we can tell from history. This is, this is pretty close. I mean, if you sort of think about it, if you sort of take the 2014 uh, efforts in, in Ukraine, the idea was, okay, and not that people said this, we, we still oppose the taking of Crimea, and we oppose, we oppose Donbass and we oppose all this, but that, you know, we'll let it, We'll, we'll let it slide. We're going to let it slide. You know, you wanted to make this case. That's fine. And so for whatever reasons that we can talk about in the next segment, uh, he waited seven and a half years to then make his move again. Syria. Um, Syria. What about Syria? He had to intervene in Syria in 2015. Probably would have occurred. Right. Okay. Than that. Yeah. Um, but for whatever, so whatever was, whatever was held him back until 2022, here it is in 2022. And this is the question. This is the, um, the thing to do is to say, the world has changed. This guy we were inclined to patronize. Uh, we were all worried about him because he was sending dis disinformation to get people to vote wrong. But somehow that didn't translate into a really tougher foreign policy approach to him when the Democrats, who were so convinced he was the one who stole the 26th election, when they got into power, it didn't really seem to affect their thinking about him that much when all is, when all is said and done. And that's what we have to see over the next month, because if we don't go through this radical break from the last 10, 15 years, from Hillary bringing the reset button in 2008 to Trump saying to, to you know, Obama, whatever, to Trump then saying, yeah, yeah, he's a killer, we're all killers, whatever. I like a tough guy. And Biden's uh, own efforts to reset in the first eight, nine yes. months of his, and yeah, the right. lifting, right. the stop and stop, the stopping of enforcing of sanctions on the Nord Stream 2 was part of a reset. So was the decision to have a summit with Vladimir Putin after 
the colonial pipeline hack and not punish the Russians for that. Uh, and instead, you know, sort of and wag our finger. Yeah. And suspending arms sales to Ukraine. Uh, right. Which, which we did in June, I think. So, so something has now happened that changes the course of history. And the question is, who's going to say the course of history has just changed and we need to change course with it? And we really don't know the answer to that question. Biden will speak later today, announcing whatever American sanctions there are. Eli, let, let me just ask you quickly and then we'll do some ads and then we'll come back and talk about domestic politics. The big gorilla, the 800 pound gorilla in the room is the sanction of all sanctions, right? Which is SWIFT, which is do we cut Russia off from the international communication system by which banks, banking and international finance uh, allows for the free flow of um, money and currency and whatever. This seems to be, we did it once, right? We did it, we used SWIFT to cut off the Iranian banks in 2012. Right. But the, but the Iranian banks, but Iran was barely part of the international financial system when that happened. So it was more symbolic than it was practical. So SWIFT is based in Belgium. We don't really control it, but we kind of do since we're obviously like, we use, we use it 50 times more than any other country does. And um, uh, what, do you, what do you think are the prospects? Because that's, aside from everything else, we're talking about, you know, aid talking about, do we, do we start committing to more defense spending and reorient ourselves to this new threat? To me, that's the 800-pound gorilla. Do they do they bite the bullet, and do they cut Russia off from SWIFT? Well, it's not entirely up to the United States, right? And it's the signal now is that they're probably that probably will not be included. I mean, it's unclear because the Biden administration is not are has not detailed what it means by these sort of very uh, significant sanctions that they've been threatening. But at this point, it doesn't seem like there would that European that there are at least some European states and other, you know, that would not support this and in SWIFT. Um, I think there are other ways in which to target Russian financial institutions besides SWIFT um, that may be on the table. But I, I, I'm, I'm somewhat doubtful at this point that that is part of what's going to happen. I hope it is. But again, all of these measures cannot just be something that we do uh, for the next few months and then they slowly erode and as Russia finds a way around them and then we continue to try to work with Russia on other issues. There has to be like, as you say, the world has changed and we are no longer seeking diplomatic off-ramps or opportunities for engagement with Russia. We are instead interested in isolating Russia. We are interested in undermining Russia. We should have Biden should have high level meetings with representatives of, of, of uh, Navalny at this point. He should make it very clear that we are on the side of Russia's democratic opposition. Doesn't mean that we're arming them or gonna do a Russia Liberation Act or something like that. But the same kinds of tactics that were done at times during the Cold War, where we highlighted the illegitimacy of the current regime and we made it clear that we uh, are trying to protect the West from Russia. And that means a really kind of commitment to, at least for the long term for now, isolation. 
And that that's a that's a change in attitude. And I have not seen anything from the Biden administration that would suggest that. Again, the tell here is that next week we are expecting some sort of announcement on an Iran deal in Vienna of which Russia is a major player in. And that kind of thing just can't happen anymore. Uh, let's let's pull back and let me talk to you uh, about our, our advertisers today, Bolin Branch and Masterworks. So no one wants to cut corners on what's important and few things matter more than a good night's rest. Bolin Branch's signature sheets feel so soft and light, you'll forget you're not actually sleeping on a cloud and they're sustainably made for uncompromising quality from field to factory. If you dream of comfortable sheets at a price that won't keep you up all night, look no further than Bolin Branch. They make the softest organic sheets on the market. They get better with every wash and comfort isn't their only standard. They use only 100% sustainable raw materials. And as the first fair trade certified manufacturer of linen, you can feel about as good about your Bolin brand sheets as they feel against your skin. They're buttery, soft, lightweight cotton and a classic sateen weave for sheets that get softer over time. They're not too hot. They're not too cool. Perfect year round sheets focuses on quality over quantity. No inflated thread counts here made to a higher standard. There's nothing worse than fitted sheets that don't fit. And Bolin Branch offers 17 inch deep fitted sheets and labeled sizes to help you make your bed beautifully every time because the little things make a big difference. Best of all, Bolin Branch gives you a fair price plus price plus a 30 day risk-free trial with free shipping and returns. Experience the best sheets you've ever felt at bolinbranch.com. Get 15% off your first set of sheets when you use promo code commentary at checkout. That's B-O-L-L-A-N-D-B-R-A-N-C-H.com, promo code commentary. And yes, if you were wondering, I have switched my buttery microphone from one microphone to another microphone. And before we return to our regularly scheduled programming. Let me talk to you about masterworks.io. With inflation at a 39-year high and rising, uh, there's never been a better time to rethink your portfolio mix. And today, one of the smartest investments you can make is to diversify your portfolio with fine art. According to Citi, art significantly outpaced the S&P 500 from 1995 to 2020, which means that when the market drops, a well-diversified art portfolio might not. And the Wall Street Journal called the art market one of the hottest on earth, not to mention the ultra wealthy have been diversifying their portfolios with artwork for generations. And now with Masterworks, you can too. Masterworks is democratizing the art market by allowing everyday investors to own a piece of iconic paintings from blue chip artists like Picasso, Warhol, and Banksy at an affordable entry point. So while making great art is difficult, investing in it is easier than ever, even better. They're giving commentary listeners priority access to their newest offerings. Start building an intelligent portfolio today at masterworks.art slash commentary. That's masterworks.art slash commentary. See important disclaimers at masterworks.io slash disclaimer. Okay, so let's uh, let's go into the fact that uh, the world is changing and our politics remains defiantly the same. Uh, everything is now being viewed through the prism of uh, American political realities in 2022. Uh, a lot of talk in the last couple of days about how, what would Trump have done? Rich Lowry saying, you know, Putin was uh, whatever, however, uh, however, however Trump talked about Putin, Putin knew Trump was unpredictable and didn't, wouldn't, didn't, wouldn't have acted to disrupt the international system. 
under Trump's watch because he just literally had no idea how Trump would react. And then he looked at Biden. He saw Afghanistan and 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 it's off to the races. Meanwhile, Ann Applebaum and others uh, of the never Trump variety are like, oh, thank God Biden is president right now. Whew, and not Trump, because, gee, Trump, of course, is a cat's paw. Uh, everything they believe anything and everything that has ever been said about him in Russia. And therefore, of course, that this is what uh, he was installed by Putin in the White House to do would be to let Putin go into Ukraine. Although, of course, that raises the question of why Putin didn't go into Ukraine when he had the chance when Trump was resident. Anyway, here we are. Um, and it's it's uh, very distressing because uh, this isn't about us, uh, is it? Like this really isn't about us. And yes, American politics in the 1930s, uh, with the rise of Hitler and the takeover of Poland and the, the invasion of Poland and all of that, was defiantly full of the same kind of fights that we had undergone in the 30s. Uh, kind of again, eerily similar with the rise of isolationism and. Republican Party being dominated by, uh, there was a lot of isolationism dominating the Republican politicians. Uh, there was a lot of isolationism among progressives. And uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt had to kind of stage a rear guard internationalist action through 1940 and 1941, uh, just to get goods and equipment and stuff to, to Europe to the extent possible. Um, what chances there of some transcendence of our current petty political differences uh, with a crisis like this. Next to none. And to uh, <clears throat> really crystallize what I think, you know, the White House is thinking, but not really saying out loud, although intimating to their credit is uh, if we were to really uh, pursue a kind of strategy that Eli and I both want to see pursued, um, something very aggressive and something that imposes real costs on the Kremlin uh, that may be unendurable to the domestic populace. Um, the enemy gets a vote and uh, Russia can respond and their response would be severely painful. Uh, if we got into a real economic war with Moscow and they wanted to cut off uh, the United States from the 10% or so uh, of our petroleum imports that we get from Russia, uh, the pain would be profound. Energy prices would skyrocket. Inflation would, is estimated to peak over 10%. Um, and we don't even know where it would stop, but at least over 10%. Uh, the kind of pain that the American public would have to endure indefinitely is unsustainable. Frank, it's just unsustainable. The public won't accept it. And they know they're up against that. That's a problem that I don't know how to thread that needle, um, how to make the Western, and that we would endure far less pain than, than Western Europe. Western Europe would suffer far more um, inconveniences and economic hardship than even we would, to say nothing of the military dimension to this crisis. So a sustained, serious campaign to punish the Kremlin here is uh, one that you need a public buy-in to support, and they haven't made the appeal to the public to support it um, because they can't articulate precisely how painful it would be. Look, uh, we, this is part of this discontinuity, right? That there's the moment before he goes in and then there's the world after he goes in. And we have pursued all sorts of policies over the last four or five years that a serious country facing this new reality would reverse or amend uh, in light of this new reality. So you're talking about energy. So obviously right. the thing to do is let the Keystone Pipeline go through, change Democratic Party policy on, on, on hydraulic fracturing and the exploration of oil on public lands and restore the American effort 
not only to get energy independent, but to be a net, but to be a serious net exporter of energy to replace the energy that we're going to lose on the international market from Russia. And, and support that, Israel's pipeline yeah. to Europe as well through Cyprus. That's yeah. the other thing. Right. Right. And and so, encourage the Germans to uh, reverse their ridiculous decision a decade ago to end their reliance on nuclear power. Right. But all of this, you can see what an incredible difficulty this is going to be for people for whom these ideas are tantamount to religious idolatry. I mean, uh, you know, Barack Obama was saved economically uh, as a president by the rise of fracking, which really started in earnest in 2007 and created an entirely new market with new jobs, with millions of new jobs all over the country that arguably kept the country from, you know, moving into a period of, of growth, even if it was low growth, almost exclusively. Um, and this creation in seven or eight years of a, of a, of a massive infrastructure of getting the oil out of the ground and transporting it through pipelines to the Gulf of Mexico and getting it out and actually exporting it and all of that. And that could be started again in five minutes because it started in five minutes before. Oh, Are I took, they going to do that? I, I, I took a half decade of investment, but you can't just develop a well overnight. No, no, no. It'll take a long, long time to know. No, but they know where everything is. They know where a lot of stuff is and everything got kind of, you know, everything got frozen in place or is kind of slowed down and you could recommit to it. Like It's not just public policy. I wish it was. I mean, Washington could absolutely prime the pump by subsidizing the investment, very heavy capital intensive investment in developing these wells. The problem is that private capital did dry up at the end of the last decade for these yeah, wells but because they weren't it dried up creating because a return. It dried up because there was a crash in oil prices. If oil goes up, you know, if oil doubles in price, then of course it becomes economically not more than feasible to develop the wells to 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 get the oil out to make the money you can make off it. So I'm just saying that I'm just using that as an example. Like Eli says, like like Germany. I mean, it's not we can pressure them or not pressure them. Germany is going to have to sort of like its refugee policy in 2015. Did it really? Does it really want to? create a condition under which it has to rely on Russian oil or, or, you know, believes itself to have to rely on Russian oil for its energy needs for the next 25 years. There's another strategic approach to this that I don't know exactly how to exploit because without sacrificing our own position, which I wouldn't want to sacrifice, I think it would be inviolable. Nevertheless, there's an opening here to exacerbate some diplomatic fissures between Moscow and Beijing. Um, China's been very cagey and cautious about what they're supporting here when it comes to Russia's irredentist demands, because they have their own irredentist demands. Um, they view uh, Taiwan as a breakaway territory. The recognition of that sovereign territory would be seen as by itself as a, as a violation of its of its territorial integrity, and it wouldn't support that. So it can't support Russia's decision to simply acknowledge the existence of a breakaway region on its on its borders, because that would undermine its own position. So there's there's some conflict there. Um, if we were to view, as I think we should, Russia as a declining power, which makes it more dangerous than China as a rising power, because the declining power has a limited window of opportunity to secure its geopolitical interests, it knows it, and it will act aggressively in pursuit of those interests, whereas China has the luxury of biding its time, then we can see an opening to create something akin to a Sino-Soviet split, but I don't know how to do that without sacrificing Taiwan. 
I think I think there's another element here, which uh, to kind of get back to your point about Ann Applebaum and Rich Lowry and Trump, and I'm not going it, to it's it's difficult to litigate. I mean, I take I take Lowry's point about the unpredictability of Trump, and the fact that he killed Soleimani. On the other hand, I could also envision a scenario where Trump would approach the situation and try to have a Yalta conference with Putin, where he would negotiate over the heads of the Ukrainians. Um, it's not a clear cut thing. But the bigger point here, and this is the one that I think that Anne Applebaum does not grasp and she should, is that imagine if the Hillary Clinton campaign, the Democratic Party had not spent all of this time, you know, insisting on a false narrative about Trump and Russia, wouldn't we be in a better position as a country, I think, to have a more unified political approach at this point and maybe be in a position to absorb at least some economic pain in order to punish Russia. But because that the Democrats decided to make Russia an issue to delegitimize the Trump presidency, there is a, a view among a, a segment of the Republican Party and American conservatives and Trump supporters, even though Trump himself has taken the line that this wouldn't have happened under me because I'm much tougher, that they have been become neutralist or in some cases even sort of taken Russia's side. And my point is, is that if, if the Democrats had not Russiagated, then we probably would be in a very different position there. That would be, that would be what it, that position of basically kind of taking the Russian side of the Tucker Carlson view that would that would be what it was in in 2014, which was a, a fringe view supported by Katrina Vandenhuvel of the nation and, you know, Pat Buchanan, but really no one else. And the fact that it is, you know, to my horror, something that a number of these sort of so-called natcons now are behind uh, is, you know, I think a direct result of the fact that we got a bunch of hokum about Russiagate for four years. I wish that was Look, true, Eli, but uh, the, the Democratic Party's considered view on Russia uh, circa 2012 was the 80s called they want their foreign policy back. No, that's true. And no, as no, you noted right. distinctly, uh, the obstacle to really isolating Russia from the Democratic perspective in the Obama era was that we desperately needed them to execute the Iran deal. We desperately needed them to take their nuclear Iranian nuclear material. We didn't have any other way around it. So that was the, the Democratic Party's view in the last set, last decade was uh, accommodationist towards Moscow, as it always had been previously. Um, we, we're living through a weird reversal here, but it's a very new reversal. No, but I, I'm, I'm talking about comfort the right. zone is to be accommodationist towards Moscow. Right, but it still would be better if the right was unified on Russia at this point, especially now that it looks at least rhetorically that the Democrats are. But the reason the right is not, I think, is because they had to deal with all this Russiagate stuff and they didn't think clearly about it, that Putin is really bad and dangerous, but you know, this stuff is wrong. I mean, that's but that my forced, view. That forced Democrats into a weird discomforting position where they actually had to be hawkish towards Russia. They never wanted to be, they never liked it. They weren't, it wasn't a natural fit for them, but some of them are still beholden at least to the, the honor code of no one was forcing the Democrats. This was the Democrats did this because this was their way of delegitimizing Trump, this was that the, the, they, they chose this. And I'm saying it has an effect. It has an effect on the discourse. Sure, I think it has absolutely. A, it has a huge effect. And I think I think you cannot discount to what extent the timing of this of of, of Putin's move 
has to do with his perception of domestic weakness uh, in America and and lack of resolve. The one interesting thing about in the wake of Trump's election and then this the investigation into Russian social media memes intended to uh, uh, ruin our elections. Uh, these are, you know, memes that were that were sort of that that tried to go viral. Some did go viral, uh, and they all had this Russian backing. And they were all about the internal uh, uh, fights and squabbles in American politics. I don't think they had any uh, actual effect on 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 Trump's election. But what was interesting about them is that they indicated that. Russian intelligence had some understanding about the fractiousness of American politics um, because they they would they would sort of play up all of the splits and camps in in that were squabbling in American politics. And I, and I think that that in general, the fact that we are at each other's throats, even now about the Trump would have been better. Oh, my God, if this imagine this had happened against Trump, I think that in itself is part of the tremendous weakness we have been projecting and that, that Russia is fully cognizant of. Well, so there's a, there's a divide, right? There's a divide on the right. There's a divide, the natural thing to do here politically, and also I think you know, largely true, but that, that's not where I'm going to, is to say Biden is weak and his behavior in 2021 gave, essentially gave Putin, proved to be the, the 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 flag that allowed Putin to move on in 2022 with his with his uh, uh, this goal that he's been working toward for for two decades. But then you have this whole other set of attitudes being expressed by Tucker and by J.D. Vance, which is who cares about Ukraine? What do we should why should we care about Ukraine? We, who the hell is Ukraine? And, uh, and so that actually interferes with a very simple, practical political message for Republicans going into 2022, which is that Democrats are soft on crime and they're soft on international crime. They are, they are, they are bad about maintaining the international order and the Pax Americana because they're weaklings and they're simps and they think that they believe in Munich security conferences, but they don't believe in the, in the, in the utility of a tank and a missile which is worth 10 Munich security conferences. That is a classic Republican message. It is the Republican message that led the Republicans to triumph in the you know, late 70s uh, through like the 90s was democratic weakness, democratic lack of manliness. I don't know how else to describe it. And <laughs> there is a significant body of opinion now, a rising body of fashionable opinion on the right that embraces the exact same theory, although from the other side and will not and will make it harder for Republicans to unite around this message, which is Biden and the Democrats can't be trusted to hold power in the United States. They let criminals loose on the streets and they let international depraders uh, destroy the world order that has been in place for 75 years. And I think, by the way, that uh, that idea of these ideas, fashionable though they may be, and young, particularly among young conservatives who want to fight culture wars and all of that, uh, there are a lot of people who care about Ukraine that people haven't even begun to think about. Okay, we have not just you, people of Ukrainian descent, as people have been pointing out. When JD Vance said this, there's a lot of people of Ukrainian descent in Ohio <laughs> um, uh, who live in Ohio who might care about. Um, you know, and who themselves left Ukraine after a Russian-induced famine uh, killed millions of people in the 1920s. 
and then everybody who has roots or connections to Central and Eastern Europe who might now be looking at this and paying attention and be terrified that Poland is next or, you know, uh, Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, or no, whoever is next. Like, that's a lot of people. There are a lot of Polish Americans in the United States, a lot. Like, there are, I don't know, a million and a half of them alone in Chicago alone. Like, there are domestic, there is a domestic constituency for an anti-Russian message. And uh, those are natural Republican voters. And the question is, will this uh, NatCon perversion and this, you know, this uh, right-wing anti-Americanism that says we can't do anything good in the world because we're corrupted and terrible because of drag queen story hour and all of that, will that take the four against an actual working political message that has worked time and time and time again for Republicans against Democrats. Yeah, it doesn't even have to be that considered, frankly, because the view you're arguing against isn't considered. It assumes a lot of ignorance on the part of its audience. Um, but negative partisanship is going to do all the work for them. Essentially, this view you're articulating positions them on the side of Joe Biden. Whatever right. Joe Biden's position is, that has to be, they would just execute whatever his uh, insufficient response is more deftly, more delicately. I don't even know. But they're not arguing for an alternative to Joe Biden's position, just a refinement of it. And there's a lot of room to your right on that position. Uh, I want can I, to, can I ask a, a sort of uh, a somewhat related question? And I don't know the answer to it. Right? I don't have a strong view of it. But if you remember when this crisis started, Joe Biden almost from the get-go ruled out any U.S. forces in Ukraine under the sort of argument that it was Ukraine wasn't in NATO, we didn't have a treaty obligation, and we're not we're going to do everything we can to support, but we're not going to send boots on the ground. Was that an was that a was that a, a blunder in the sense that had there been a little bit more ambiguity on this question, would perhaps Putin have recalculated because? Putin doesn't want to get into a war either with the United States, um, just as we don't want to get into a war with Russia. But is was was that a mistake or was it wise to not make a threat that we weren't willing to keep? Wise I mean, to it, not make a threat that we weren't willing to keep. It would have fractured the alliance. It would have created visible yeah. fissures within the alliance because it's a it's a threat we weren't going to make good on. B, it would have had European powers would have come out and said, no, 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 no. That's absolutely not happening. But the dirty little secret here is that Europe is or Europe, NATO is deterred. NATO has yeah. been functionally militarily deterred yes. from allowing Ukraine to ascend to NATO membership, have been since 2008. That's why this is a dead issue. No one can really say that out loud, but we are militarily deterred. No NATO nation is going to assume ownership of the ongoing military conflict between Ukraine and Russia. Um, let's move on for a second because there was a blockbuster, uh, we're going to change topics here, there was a blockbuster piece in the New York Times yesterday about the Centers for Disease Control and the, um, and the information that it has been gathering over the last two years uh, uh, in relation to COVID um, that I, I, I think uh, is in danger of... of um, how can you say this, of sort of slipping, uh, not getting the attention that it, it, it deserves. Um, I'm, I'm looking for the piece now as we speak. 
But essentially, it's said that uh, the CDC has collected vastly more data than it has actually uh, released, um, uh, and that uh, they uh, have done so. Uh, they have they have been uh, loath to release a lot of data that they have collected, not because uh, the the data are incomplete or something like that, but because they are worried that it will be misused, that it will it will be used to uh, It'll be used by bad actors to uh, ruin the, you know, ruin the how how, how would we say here? Yeah, to sort of ruin the, the the campaign to make people act cautiously and properly in relation to COVID. And the you know the the piece begins uh, with the data that um, when the CDC first published the significant data on the effectiveness of boosters in adults younger than sixty five two weeks ago. It left out the numbers for 18 to 49 year olds, uh, the group least likely to benefit from extra shots because the first two doses already left them well protected. So in other words, they did not tell the American people effectively that if you are 18 to 49, you don't need a booster shot. It is ineffective. Uh, and why would they, why wouldn't they release it? A spokesman for the CDC said, Basically, at the, end of the, at the end of the day, the data is not yet ready for prime time. Uh, another reason is fear that the information might be misinterpreted, Ms. Nordland said. Um, that's the spokesman. Uh, so we now have essentially the CDC confirming that they are withholding data gathered for us to make decisions about how we react to COVID because when the data do not conform with their um, with their larger program. I mean, this is the pattern, right? I mean, very beginning of the pandemic, Fauci says, I don't think masks are effective when in fact he believed they were. And he said that because there was a concern about a run on the mask supplies and noble lie. Uh, at the very beginning of the pandemic, we know that there were scientific advisors to Fauci who said this looks like it may have come from a lab and they did everything they could to try to suppress that message for political reasons. This is an arrogance. It's a kind of hubris that uh, the CDC and the sort of you know health, the public health bureaucracy, and it's their attitude since the very beginning of the pandemic that the American people cannot handle the truth and it is coming back to bite them uh, as we see, not just with uh, the number of Americans who are vaccine skeptics, um, but, you know, you're seeing that what if there is another variant that's really bad and we will have to go back to some sort of, you know, masking or, or social distancing or whatever regime. And it's not going to work because I think they have squandered their credibility at this point. I think it's a little worse. It's even a little worse than that somehow, yeah. because we now have the New York Times reporting that the CDC is saying openly that it is withholding data from the American people out of fear that that data will be misinterpreted. Let, right. Let's just let's no, go. No, 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 not that it will be misinterpreted, that it'll be cor correctly interpreted. Right. But they're afraid they're going to draw conclusions in it inevitable conclusions that any rational person would would draw based on this data and that you're going to do things with that that they don't want you to do which is another thing that uh, Fauci said the other day Eli you missed the vaccine uh, herd immunity threshold where he said oh I'm, right. I'm gonna bump up the herd immunity threshold just to get people to get more vaccinated just alter the data on the fly 
And he was on TV the other day and he said, you know, it's too risky to get kids to take off their masks. The rationale being not because of any particular threat to children, but because that would give you license to do things that we don't want you to do. You would think it's psychologically, you would think that without children being in masks, reminding you constantly of a pandemic, that you might act like there isn't a pandemic anymore. So these children are just mannequins that we're using to induce behavior patterns in you that we think are desirable. I mean, it's the same thing to to tie it back to the earlier conversation. It's like, you know, we had, you know, four years of leaks allegedly from the intelligence community that said there was, you know, Putin and and, and Trump had conspired in some way and were were tied together. Mueller says he found no evidence of such a conspiracy. Lots of Americans said, why should I believe what the FBI and the CIA tells us? And that the truth is that we need public trust in these institutions for moments like this. We need we and and they and that's part of it. So I come back to this. This is a big theme of the moment that we're in. And COVID is the uh, clearest example of it that one of the reasons why we are having this debate over things that we shouldn't really even be debating is because the institutions themselves have squandered the public trust, period. And they've done it because they think they know better and that it's in our own best interest to believe something that, uh, you know, not get the entire story. Well, you know, so when there's a story like this and you find out, okay, they've been withholding data, this gives people license to say, to infer, well, what else yeah. are they hiding? What else would it, uh, you, you, you think this is the only data that they don't want to share with us? You, you know, and it, so inevitably they have, they have in their effort to try to stave off the sort of Trumpian distrust of, of, of institutions, they have emboldened it continuously. Again, I somehow I, I I somehow think that you guys are not like even dealing with the 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 the, the utter the extraordinary seriousness of this uh, piece. Like th- this is the hinge. I mean, again, it could maybe it'll maybe people refuse to pay attention to it. I'm sorry, there's some kind of leaf blower outside, so maybe I should end this. But uh, very importantly, <clears throat> when the New York Times says CDC is sitting on data that it doesn't want to release because it doesn't think the public can handle it uh, or it thinks the public, or it's not ready yet, meaning they haven't cooked it or baked it or twisted it around. So they haven't left out the 18 to 49 data. That would mean that then 18, 49 year olds wouldn't get boosted. Now let's think about this for a minute. 18 to 49 year olds apparently don't need to get boosted. That means, you know, all right. You and, and, and Eli, you guys don't need to get boosted. You are out of the you're out of the demographic that needs to get boosted, according to their data. Did you know that? No, I'm 60, so I needed to get boosted. Uh, they had data that said, don't get that. You don't need to get boosted. Now you can get boosted. It probably won't hurt you, but maybe it will. Who knows? They haven't told you that. That's people, Americans, 18 to 49. How many hundred million? How many? How many people is that? Is that 200 million people? Is it 100? I don't know. I'm convinced people? that the only reason I didn't get deathly ill when COVID ravaged my house is because of my boost. So I like my boost. I'm happy with okay, it. Okay, your boost is fine. I'm just saying you have the right to know that according to the data, the boost is ineffective. Uh, you know, in aggregate, in sort of in 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 the largest possible number, it apparently doesn't. It's 
the two this shots shatters my worldview. I was really very well, shattered their worldview in my, in my too. So what, they, so what did they do? It shattered their worldview. So what they decided to do was delete it from the delete the information from the release. We are a self-governing people. They work for us. Right. They work for us. It is beyond a scandal. Like it's as though it's like when when claims are made, this is Eli, this is part of your business, right? When claims are made that information needs to be withheld from Americans for reasons of national security, that's often true because right. individuals who risk their lives getting us that information might get killed if that information is released. But a lot of times it isn't true. They don't want to release it because they don't want the hassle of having to explain their own behavior in relation to it. So they try to classify everything and all this. And it's a, it's a dance and it's a gavotte. Uh, the pandemic affects everybody. Policy is being made for 330 million people. We deserve to have every single piece of evidence of information that has been collected by the CDC as a matter of public record with total transparency. There is no excuse for there not to be total transparency, period. I don't care if you don't like what Alex Berenson does with it or not. I don't like what Fauci does with it. Well, and it's it's if worse. Uses it too, it's worse because the same crowd that you know will probably ignore or justify uh the cdc not releasing all of the data will turn around and say that if you attack the cdc you are spreading misinformation or disinformation and therefore social media companies have a right to deplatform you or should deplatform you so it's it's kind of coming at it from both directions which is that there are now there's very legitimate reasons now to um, question and, uh, uh, you know, criticize the, the CDC. And yet there is a, a movement among many Democrats and progressives and liberals to say that uh, people who go against the guidance of the CDC are, you know, spreading misinformation and getting people killed. And, uh, you know, that that is infuriating at this point. I think this just because there's two sides of that coin, which is that, you know, the, 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 the guard, the, the, the kind of gatekeepers are in a way spreading misinformation by not giving us the full story on boosters and at the same time trying to deplatform misinformation that challenges them. It's unbelievable. Well, we are, um, you know, we're, we're on, we're, it's like we're standing on the precipice of massive American change. Or yeah. massive change, like massive world change, when when this war goes full bore, and um, and everything, the wheels are just coming off everywhere in terms of American domestic policy. That's just that's just the fact of it. Inflation, you know, once this war starts, inflation is the, the uh, stock market is going to crash. Inflation is inflation is going to is going to go up. Supply chain problems are going to increase because of world instability. And there is going to be the distrust of our public health officials and the president and all that are going to increase precisely at a time when at a, with an international crisis, you would want the country to cohere a little bit so that people felt more safe and secure. And clearly that is not going to happen. And the Armageddon-like nature of, 20, of November 2022 for the Democrats seems to be coming ever more clearly into focus. So... Uh, and you may celebrate that because you want Republicans to be in charge and you don't want them to be in charge. And I understand that. But this is happening in the war is going to be happening in the worst possible way. 
because real suffering, real suffering is, 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 is in the offing and not just for us, but for the people of Ukraine, obviously most pressingly, but we are, but we will, there will be ancillary damage suffered here and in Europe. And yeah, people are going to punish the politicians who didn't handle it right. But that doesn't mean that the pain that could have been avoided uh, isn't, uh, you know, is, isn't, isn't going to happen. So Eli Lake, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. At this cheerful, cheery, wondrous moment here. Um, you know, we, 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 we rely on you to add to the store of crushing morosity in the world. And you have, you've done so admirably. Uh, we'll be back tomorrow for uh, Abe and Noah and the absent Christine. I'm John Pothoritz. Keep the candle burning. <laughs>